Today, entertainment has evolved. Radio is yesterday's news. TV repeats itself into oblivion. And podcasting. Yeah, we're about to get started. It's the new black. So here on the Mojo Radio Show, we're giving our own nod to the rockingest month on the planet. Hey guys, this is John Karabi from the Dead Daisy. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. Hi there, I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I'm Batman. Hi, this is Ivor Davies from My South. And it's Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. Outstanding. Over the next 31 days, we'll take you from the sports field to the battleground, from the boardroom to the recording studio in celebration of all things Mojo, along with all the trimmings you'd expect. Hey everybody and welcome to Rocktober 2018 on the Mojo Radio Show. As you can hear, this is by far our biggest month of the year. You can tell simply by the amount of work that's gone into our intro alone for Rocktober. So what you're going to hear this month is great guests... Uh, there'll probably be rock type of swag to be given away. There'll be some acoustic sets, perhaps definitely some lessons of rock. Uh, we may even throw in some comedy. But one thing we are guaranteed of is loads of learning. 31 days full of mojo as we rock our way through October. Behind the console, welcome to week two, Robbo. The year is getting away from us. We're already in week two of October. <laughs> it seems like last year, it seems like exactly a week since we were doing October last time. But yeah, you're right. We're almost there again. So for those people who may have joined us for the first time this week, and we do get people joining us each week as they discover our little program, Rocktober, if I take you back, back in the day... Rocktober was a month where commercial radio stations around the globe would, well, they basically turn themselves inside out to create a huge month of, they put on original content, there'd be segments and live performances and rock gigs, giveaways, comedy, special features, interviews, the whole bunch. But what happened is over the years, Rocktober got pushed aside and radio changed. And we thought, well, it was something that we loved when we were in radio and being a podcast radio show, we brought it back. So welcome to Rocktober 2018. (laughs) 
The Mojo Radio Show. Now, given it's Rocktober, the one thing that we have been lacking up till this point is what? I don't know. We've had a bit Country of rock. Music. Oh, country no, music. Country music. <laughs> Sorry, of course, how stupid of me. How could I forget? So when you think of country music, you don't really ever think of the mandolin. Yeah. However, <laughs> that, uh, that track and story you told me as we were setting up for today's Rocktober show about the mandolin, just I reckon it's really worth sharing. Yeah, yeah. Well, should, should we play the piece first? Yeah. I wanted bagpipes because... It sounded lonesome. And I always, from the time that I wrote the song, just on mandolin, and I knew two chords on mandolin when we recorded this. And um, I'd gotten a hold of a mandolin. A friend of mine gave me um, trying to learn how to play it, and I learned how to play that, and that was it. Now, for those of you who don't know, that's American country artist Steve Earle talking about his hit, massive worldwide hit, Copperhead Road. And what he's saying is that when he wrote the song, he wrote it on a mandolin, but he'd never played the mandolin before and he never played it again. He picked it up, knew two chords, wrote Copperhead Road, and that was it, put it down again. That in itself is pretty cool, don't you think? I mean, you know, it's the only thing he can play on the mandolin. He picked it up, taught himself that because he needed it for the song and that's it, just put it down again, I'm done. (laughs) Probably because it is the mandolin, let's be honest. It is this ongoing thing we have that we're hearing from, well, Joe DeSena last week in Rewind and Jay Redman in this show is pushing yourself out of your comfort zone to do something different and to really invent. And I don't care what industry you work in. I don't care what your charity is you work in. I don't care what sport you play in. I don't care what musical instrument you play. The fact of sitting down to take on the challenge to say, number one, how would I use a mandolin? And number two, I can't play it. I'm going to teach myself. In itself, that's pretty cool. And that is an iconic song. I mean, you play that in any bar at about one o'clock in the morning with a few <laughs> yeah. Dosekis on board. And I'm telling you, everyone's singing. It's a dance floor filler. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. And it's a crossover. I mean, you could play that on pretty much any radio station mm. Mm. and nobody would arc up. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should we should post the link to that in the show notes because the full interview, he actually does talk about that. Um, but the other thing that occurred to me was from our conversation last week about music not being so memorable anymore, it made me also wonder whether that's a part of it, whether these days, you know, we don't have a Steve Earle going, I'm going to teach myself to play the mandolin, just this one song because I need it. We don't have anyone sort of pushing those boundaries anymore. I I sort of flashed back to last week. I think we do. uh, And I think a guy called Jack White from the White Stripes, and I found a fantastic piece on him this week, which I absolutely thought was inspirational. We'll keep it for next week's show. But I think there are people, I think there are artists, I think there are performers, I think there are recorders, but I think there are very few artists. And I think we need to dig for them and and put a few more on the show so we'll, we'll keep Jack White for next week but the thing you said before we started the show was that are there artists that are pushing themselves to do something different and I would question the podcast industry because you heard it the head of the show as we call it in the industry for Rocktober is podcasting is a medium where people can push themselves because you don't have a program director looking over your shoulder telling you what you need to do to keep it light and bright uh, Tight and so bright. I, yeah. <laughs> Is that what the kids call it today? And um, 
I think that we should challenge ourselves for the first week of November to do something which has never been done mm-hmm. and is profound in the podcasting world. So I think we should take on that Jack White challenge, that Steve Earle challenge, the challenge that we have spoken about a number of times to say, well, what could we do that would be completely different that's never been done in the podcasting world before? Our special guest this week on Rocktober, and I do mean special guest, is a he's a decorated US Navy SEAL, Lieutenant Jason Redman, who served in Colombia, Peru, Afghanistan, and Iraq, where he commanded mobility and assault forces. Jason conducted over 40 different missions with his men in Iraq, locating more than 120 bad guys, the Al-Qaeda insurgents. But his journey wasn't without problems and, let's just say, supreme challenge. And this show is a story about his critical wounding in 2007 whilst he was ambushed whilst leading a mission against one of the key Al-Qaeda commanders. So it is a complete honour to welcome you to the show. Jason Redman, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Well, thank you, guys. Much, much appreciated for having me on. Mate, it's our, it truly is our honour, which we will discuss why it is our honour during the show. When people walk up to you today and ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? I would say that I like to make people better. I think that is my goal now. Uh, obviously, with what happened to me, and, you know, I think Erica told you guys that today is my, what I call my rebirth day, uh, <laughs> 11 years ago today. It was 11 years ago today, exactly. I was in Iraq on uh, one of the final missions. We were one week uh, from sending our guys home. And I walked into a very well-executed ambush and got all shot up. And uh, shouldn't have made it. You know, doctors told me from the amount of blood I lost, it's a miracle I survived. And uh, But I'm here. And I got a second chance. And I feel like, you know, I learned so many moments. I learned so many lessons out of that, out of not only that moment, but so many moments before it that it made me, um, it just made me say, okay, if I get a second chance, a second go around, I'm going to try and help as many people as I can. And that really has become my mission, both with my nonprofit and even my for-profit company, getting out there and speaking and trying to help people uh, do exactly that. Coming back to the first statement, trying to help people be better. You know, it's interesting. Firstly, we feel very privileged, honestly, very, very privileged that today is the anniversary of the rebirth. And I want to get to that moment shortly. It's interesting when you go through your stuff, Jason, that you've had a couple of rebirths, number one in your career, and then sort of secondly, I guess, in your life with getting caught in that firefight, which I'll get to. But early in your SEAL career, you went through a period 
where you really had to look at yourself and and be reborn because it's really, you know what's funny with it, hearing his stuff, Jason, is we only hear the good stuff of SEALs. We only hear the success they have and how they do what they do. But your story is different because you went into the SEALs and you, at a point there, you figured you knew it all and then you were humbled and had to re redo yourself. Take us back to that time. Yeah, and uh, and it's not just the SEAL teams, it's everybody. Uh, you know, everybody out there, everybody wants to put their best foot forward. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like with resumes. Nobody ever writes on their resumes, you know, and at this point in my career, I failed, but it's there. Uh, we always want to highlight the high points and the positives, but, you know, we really learn the most out of our negatives. And I, I definitely did. Um, you know, so yeah, I was a young, I was a young enlisted SEAL who excelled. I did very well in my career and, uh, earned me a point to get selected for a commission and went to school, um, crushed, crushed school. I did very well. I ended up graduating number one out of my, uh, ROTC class, came back into the SEAL teams, but some things had changed. Uh, I left for school prior to 9-11. 9-11 happened while I was at school, and I came back to the SEAL teams who, mm. like me, had been a peacetime SEAL teams to suddenly stepping back into uh, a whole new SEAL team. Uh, individuals who all had combat experience, and not only that, it changed how we were doing things overnight. And instead of humbling myself and, and looking at, wow, you know, th- I never learned how to do things the, these ways because we were cha- our tactics changed, how we were doing things changed. Uh, instead, I allowed my ego to get in the way and unwilling, you know, good leaders recognize, you know, the strengths of those they lead. And they recognize, good leaders recognize that people they lead oftentimes are much smarter than they are and to learn from them. And I wasn't willing to do that yet. I let my ego get in the way. And all of that just led me down this road of uh, ego driving bad decisions and damaging my credibility as a leader, um, as as a junior officer. And the harder I held on to try and be perfect, the more I struggled trying to do things that I didn't know how to do and, you know, was too proud to ask some of the guys I should be leading how to do them. And that led me, um, you know, the bane of of a lot of people to drink too much, uh, you know, off time and to not set a good example as a leader. And I tell people that credibility is the currency of leadership. Uh, so when you lead and you are in a leadership position, you've got to lead at all times. Every decision you make impacts your credibility, including when you're out having a good time. You know, if you're a, a blubbering idiot when you're out, you know, your guys are going to look at you and say, that guy's an idiot. Uh, and and th- things like that started to chip away at my professional reputation. And all of that culminated on a mission in Afghanistan in 2005 where frankly, I made, I made a bad decision. And I, uh, I just, I made a bad decision based on wanting to get into a firefight and wanting to get into the mix, which in the warrior class is, is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, all of us want to get into the mix. We want to prove ourselves, but I did it at a bad time that potentially jeopardized, uh, the lives of people because of a bad decision. And, And I'm very fortunate that my decision didn't 
cost anyone to lose their lives or anything to happen. Um, but it did cast a negative light on me. Uh, my leadership said, wow, you know, that was a very impulsive decision that really could have cost some people their lives. And, uh, and I had some other people that said, man, this guy's a loose cannon. I don't want to work with him. Uh, all the prior decisions, remember I talked about credibility is the currency of leadership. I'd been slowly eroding away my credibility and it culminated with that bad decision. And I had teammates that said, I, I don't want to work with that guy. You know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want that guy leading me. And, uh, and I had to go back and meet with our commanding officer and stand on the carpet. And basically my leadership and tactical abilities were called into question. And, uh, thankfully he believed in me. I mean, I was kind of at a tipping point. They could have kicked me out and just said, Hey, we don't think you're salvageable. We don't think you can come back. Um, but they didn't, they said, Hey, look, you made a lot of good decisions before we need to humble you. We need you to really look at the world from a leader uh, where you think about the long-term impacts of your decisions and how they're going to impact both the mission and the people around you. And, um, and we need to do some things to get you to do that. So that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, I got smacked down and humbled and one of the, you know, there were several things that occurred, but the last thing that occurred is they sent me to U.S. Army Ranger School, uh, which at its heart and soul is a leadership school. And, uh, it is a school that, uh, Literally, everybody's equal. Nobody wears rank. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the military, whether you've been in only for a couple of years or whether you've been in for over 20 years. Uh, everybody's the same and everybody steps into the leadership crucible and has to stand, you know, stand up to the test, you know, with lack of food, lack of sleep and pretty arduous conditions. And it was uh, it was exactly what I needed in my life at that time to really look inward at who I was as a leader and what it truly took to lead people into combat. It must have been so humbling for you because I've heard you say that your fellow SEALs and your commanding officers said to you, Jason, you don't cut the mustard as a SEAL. And with the pride that comes with the Trident, with the pride that comes of serving in a platoon next to other SEALs who are your highest priority, and you are a leader to have them and another leader say, you don't cut the mustard as a seal. That must have been gutting. H- how, do you, how do you turn around from that? You know, you got to come to grips with who, who you are. And, I, and I, I was in denial at first. I will admit, I fought it. And I also went through a very uh, um, <laughs> massive amount of depression. I mean, I hate to say that the only time in my life I've ever thought about taking my own life was during that time. Um, you know, in the special operations community. And I'm sure there's tons of people out there that have made a a big mistake or they've failed and they think their life's over. Professional reputation has been tarnished. In our community, your professional and tactical reputation, your ability to be a good operator and a good leader is everything um, because, you know, we're an all-volunteer unit. And you have to be able to do the job. The guys to the right and left of you have to trust that you are going to make good decisions that hopefully will bring them home. And in that moment, I had reached a point in my career where I had guys say that they didn't trust me to make the right decisions, that they felt like I jeopardized their lives. And that was crushing. Uh, it, it was a crushing feeling uh, for that to happen. But, you know, the great thing about hitting rock bottom is you've hit bottom. And then the only way you can go is back up. And, you know, there are some people who will just accept to stay at bottom and they'll never recover. But for most people, 
if you can get to that point, you can climb back out. And that's what I realized. And, and really, I got to say that I had someone that helped me do that. I, I didn't just automatically do it on my own. I kept moving forward, but I was still a little bit in denial. I still was like, ah, I'm the victim. And uh, the, the other thing that we do as human beings is we, we listen to that insidious little demon that lives inside our brains, that, you know, that little voice that's going on in the background all the time that tries to tell you, you know, you're not good enough or you're not fast enough, you're not big enough, you know, you know, you, you, you know whatever it is. I mean, everybody has that little voice that tries to tell you those things. And uh, and it's our ability to squash that voice and keep driving forward, ignore that voice. And I that little voice was telling me that I had done too much damage to my reputation, that my fellow SEALs were never going to follow me again. You would never no matter what you did, you'd never be able to redeem your reputation uh, to the point that, you know, guys would respect you and follow you again. And I had an amazing leader who offered me some advice while I was going through, I was at ranger school and, uh, and I, I told him that I said, you know, sir, you know, these guys are never going to follow me again, no matter what I do, no matter how good I am, you know, they're never going to follow me again. So I'd be better off just leaving the Navy and starting a new life. And he, he said the most profound leadership advice I've ever heard. And he said, yeah, they call me red. He said, red, people will follow you if you give them a reason to. And that really succinctly is the definition of leadership, our ability to motivate and inspire other people because we give them a reason to. And I mean, it truly is the essence. I mean, it's a succinct definition of leadership by example. And uh, that really started to drive me forward. Uh, and really, I just said, OK, I'm going to take it step by step. I'm, I'm not going to look one year down the road, two years down the road, my you know career down the road. It really went back to when I went through SEAL training. When you go through Hell Week, they tell you, don't think about trying to make it to Friday because that's too far. You know, you just got to think about finishing whatever evolution you're doing at the time. When you get to the end of that evolution, you're going to get a mental break, maybe for only for a few seconds. And then you look at finishing the next evolution. And that's how I started to look at things after that. I said, OK, every leader, every evolution I do from this point forward is an opportunity to be a leader. And I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to do it as well as I can. And if I'm not in a leadership position, then I'm just going to listen and learn. And, and I'm going to get to the end of that evolution, and I'm going to look at the next evolution. I'm going to look at how I can lead from that. And slowly, over time, over that next two-year period, I earned the trust of the guys that I was uh, honored to be able to, to lead and work. This, this question is going to lead to where I want to go with our conversation, Jason. And you said that the mark of a man is not found in the past, is found in their approach to adversity and how they build their future. Based on what you've been through in that part of your life, how do you face adversity today? You know, head on, you keep grinding through it. I mean, that's the thing about adversity. It's hard and it sucks. I mean, that's, you know, the whole definition, you know, an obstacle or, or you know, something tough in your path that slows down your forward movement. Uh, or hinders it or downright, you know, halts it. And, you know, and whatever it is, whether you're in combat, whether you're in business, whether it's some sort of personal problem that develops, 
At the end of the day, what I talk about is the overcome mindset, the ability to keep grinding forward. And um, I liken it to uh, our breachers. Our, our breachers are a group of individuals in the military law enforcement that are tasked with getting inside a hardened structure. Typically, they go through doors because the door is a weaker point than a hardened wall. Maybe they'll go through a window, uh, but obviously some doors are much thicker and reinforced than others. So they learn all kinds of tactics to be able to get inside doors or windows or walls or whatever they, whatever they need to do to be able to get into a structure. And uh, they learn all these uh, all these things, whether it's uh, uh, they're utilizing manual tools such as a sledgehammer, you know, a simple tool just to knock in a, a door that's just locked, you know, and doesn't have any reinforcement, all the way to the far end of the spectrum of learning how to be, you know, surgeons with explosives. But I tell people that what really defines what I call the overcome mindset is the mindset that we teach our breachers. We tell them it doesn't matter what door or wall or obstacle is in your path, whatever adversity is there, you're going to get to the other side, no matter what, whether you go over it, whether you go under it, whether you go around it, or whether you go, bam, directly through it you will get to the other side. And if you could apply that thought process to everyday life, to whatever problem you come against, no matter how hard the grind is, you're going to keep pushing. You're going to figure out a way to get to the other side. And even accepting the fact that the other side may not be the outcome that you think it was going to be, but no matter what, you still move forward. You didn't do what so many people will do when faced with crippling and crushing adversity, and that's quit. Uh, as long as you don't quit, there is an end state somewhere out there, but it just takes you to keep pushing forward, grinding over it, under it, around it, or through it to get to the other side. Do you know, it's interesting in your time, and even today, facing battles, you've talked about that the large part of your career was fighting the enemy, but today you see a different enemy and you understand that we are our greatest enemy. How do we, how do we get around, how do we use the breacher to get around the imposter syndrome? Because a few minutes ago on the show, you talked about that voice because you're not a big guy and many would look at you and go, it's, you're not what I expect from a SEAL. So you've had yeah. to deal with other people's <laughs> voices and your own. How do, you, how do you deal with that imposter syndrome to, to, when you know that you are the greatest enemy you have? You know, you... you you both have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable. That's probably the biggest thing. Um, that voice uh, is always going to be there in everybody. I guarantee some of the greatest, some of the greatest people that have ever walked this earth. You know, some of the greatest leaders, some of the greatest athletes. You know, Michael Jordan, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. That little voice was inside his head too. But at some point, you have to have the ability to ignore it and not listen to it. Um, it's there, but it just becomes a drone, a buzz in the background, just something that you're just like, you know what, I don't care. I don't care what you say. You know, it's kind of like the old adage, you know, ignore the haters. There's always going to be people that have something negative to say. Well, that little guy or gal in your mind is the same way. And you just have to keep pushing forward. So getting uncomfortable with the, or getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, I think is a key element in our ability to, to, to move forward. You know, I've had so many people tell me, 
I can't do something, you know, you're right. I am not, you know, I'm five, eight and, you know, about 165, 170. I am not the, I'm on the smaller end of the size for seals. And, you know, I had plenty of people tell me I'd never be a seal. Started my own business, um, you know, grinding forward with that. You know, I've had plenty of people tell me, oh, you know, you're not going to be successful in business. Um, all these different things. you know, you choose what you want to believe. And the little voice in your head is going to prey on everything you hear and everything that you want to believe. It's going to prey on your weaknesses. The, the, The only thing that you can do is continue to drive forward. And that's what I believe. I mean, there's no doubt about it that I am not the smartest guy. I am not the best businessman. I wasn't the best SEAL. But what I was really good at was being resilient and just when the grind came, ignoring everything else that was out there, ignoring people that would say, you can't do this, you can't do that, or that little voice in my head that would say it too, and I would keep pressing forward. And ultimately, I would make it to the finish line. The ultimate of that, Jason, is one's life. And I've always been fascinated by you guys getting into a firefight. Like, what's that like? And I just want you to take us back to that moment where you are in the firefight, literally for your life, where you've taken a gunshot wound to the face, your jaw's shattered, your face is severely jacked up, nerves exposed, and you've already had a couple of gunshot wounds to the arm. And you're still in a bad firefight and pinned down. And you said you looked up at the sky and you saw the stars. Just take us back to that moment, Jason, because that, that is the ultimate example of fighting through discomfort. Take us back to that exact moment 11 years ago to the day. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. A firefight's an amazing thing. Combat is an amazing thing because you are, it's invigorating. Um, you know, there are times I miss it, uh, because life gets incredibly simple and slows down because all the distractions that we have, we live in this electronic world. I mean, how amazing is it? Here I am in Virginia with, uh, you know, this storm, Hurricane Florence, you know, kind of, you know, <laughs> brushing us. You guys are in Australia and, and we're communicating like this, but, yeah. you know, it comes with its, um, you know, it has its positives and negatives. And that's one of the greatest things about combat is it just brings people down to the most simple form. And it is, unfortunately, the most basic level of man is kill or be killed. And, and you are unquestionably alive in that moment. Um, you know, the firefights that I was in, you know, bullets are whizzing by you, but there's so much going on. I mean, it'd be one thing if you were untrained and you'd never trained in your life and suddenly you find yourself in the middle of this maelstrom with bullets flying around you. I guarantee your senses would be overwhelmed and, you know, you probably would shut down. But if you trained your whole life and you have spent your entire life being in these situations where you have gunfire going on and explosions and your ability to think and make decisions in that, and now suddenly it's a real-world combat environment where not only are people are shooting at you, you're leading people. And, and you're thinking about, how do I move these people so that I can both protect them and we can execute whatever we're trying to do? It's like your senses move to this higher level. Everything slows down, and and it's it's just literally invigorating. 
Um, and then, you know, so I think I was still riding that high that night in my firefight when obviously I got all shot up and that's the first time I'd been shot. And I'll tell you, being shot is not like the movies. Um, first off, it hurts a lot. Uh, I'll tell you that right now. You watch these movies where guys get shot and they just keep running around. You know, I mean, I will say if you take a through and through, meaning it didn't hit bone or anything, you know, I've seen guys that are able to still function somewhat. But when a when a high caliber bullet shatters bone, it is absolutely devastating. It will shut that person down. That's exactly what happened to me. Those first rounds that hit me, uh, I had one that hit me on the inside of, uh, of my bicep that shattered my my humerus, uh, the bone in your upper arm. And I had another round that hit me inside my forearm and it shattered my elbow, both bones in my forearm. And it, it damaged my nerves. And I literally thought my arm had been shot off. It felt like It felt like an electric, like a lightning bolt went up my arm, traveled up my arm, up the base of my spine, and then slammed me in the back of the head. Like my entire skull was electrocuted and it came from my arm. And when I reached over, I couldn't feel a thing. I couldn't, I, I didn't feel my arm. I didn't realize at the time that my arm had caught on my gear. And when I got shot, it came back and it caught on my gear on my radio. And it was, it was hanging there. But when I reached over, because I couldn't feel a thing, I didn't feel my arm. And I thought, holy shit, my arm got shot off. Um, that was my first thought. And I was like, okay, well, I'm still in this firefight. Uh, so I still, you know, I can't just sit here and, you know, lay down and cry because I lost my arm. Uh, you know, you got to survive. So I continued to shoot and I yelled out to my guys that I was hit. And, uh, and when I did that, uh, that attracted attention from the enemy. They heard me yelling and they turned the guns on me again and uh, caught in that crossfire. At that point, I took more rounds off my body armor. I took rounds off my helmet. I had my left, my left night vision tube shot off. I took rounds off my gun um, and I turned around to try and move back to the only point of cover we had, which was that big tractor tire. And, uh, and that's, uh, I guess when I took that round in the face and it's an, and, I, and I'll just try and put it in context. Cause you asked what it's like to be in a firefight. It, it is, uh, it is very surreal. Um, bullets, high caliber bullets. And these are big bullets. Uh, I was being shot at by two PKM machine guns, which is a very large belt fed weapon, uh, that shoots a seven, seven, six, two by 54 millimeter bullet. And, you know, it's traveling at, you know, God knows, uh, you know, three to 4,000 feet per second. So it, it literally is traveling, you know, twice as fast as the speed of sound. So it actually makes a sonic crack. That's the crack of the bullet when it goes by you. And you can actually feel it when it's really close. You can actually feel the, the air pressure coming off the bullet. So it's a really surreal feeling when you're in a firefight like I was, and I was feeling this all around me. I could hear these cracks and I could feel literally bullets by me inches inches um and of course then the ones that you know hit me uh those i felt even more <laughs> but <laughs> but uh you know i turned and i caught that round in the face and that knocked me out my guys saw it hit me it caught me directly i had turned around everything had hit me at that point forward on the front of my body 
And I turned and that, that, that one round caught me directly right in front of my ear. So where your ear connects to your face is where that bullet went in. And it went in at an angle. It traveled through my cheek and, uh, and exited the right side of my nose. So it blew out my, my cheekbone. It took off most of my nose. It traveled under my eye and vaporized my orbital floor. So the little bone, the little bony shelf that your eye sits on, it just blew that right out the front of my face. Uh, damaged my eye muscles. The, the overpressure of the bullet going through my face shattered the head of my jaw. It actually shattered my jaw down to my chin. And uh, it broke all the bones above my eye. So my entire eye sock, socket got broken. Um, and the, 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 the overpressure and the impact of being shot in the face with this high caliber round knocked me out. I, my guys saw me drop right in front of them. And they thought I was dead. I was about 15 yards in front of them when I got shot trying to move back. And they thought I was dead. And I was unconscious for I don't know how long, maybe five minutes while this firefight raged. And uh, I woke up and if any, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have ever done any contact sports where you've got your bell rung or you've been hit hard. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it takes a couple of minutes to come back. You know, it takes a couple of minutes to kind of figure out what happened. And I was laying there flat on my back after I'd been shot and I came to and literally this gunfight's continuing to rage over me. There's, you know, my teammates are literally shooting over me. You know, the, the bad guys, the enemy are shooting at my team and I'm laying on the ground in between them and uh, trying to figure out what's going on. Put two and two together. Like I knew I was messed up. I knew I was in a firefight, but I couldn't quite figure out what had happened. And uh, it was at that point I realized I'd been shot in the face and that I was really messed up. And, you know, you start to, um, you know, you start to realize that, you know, I couldn't do anything until my guys won the fight. I sure couldn't get up because then I get all shot up. Um, I couldn't get my tourniquet on, so I had to wait. And I just <laughs> in the middle of this firefight, I had time to sit there and just kind of think. And I started to think about my family. I started to think about that I probably, unfortunately, was going to die because um, I was losing a lot of blood. It was getting harder and harder to breathe. I was recognizing the physiological breakdown. Um, you know, I was losing feeling. I was losing uh, strength. Uh, and every breath started to take more. And I started to think, man, I am, I am not going to make it home. I'm going to die right here in this dirty dirty field. And, um, and it was at that point, I remember laying on my back, coming full circle to your question and looking at the stars. And if you've ever been overseas, or if you've ever been anywhere in the world where technology has not really caught up, and there are no lights at night, it is amazing how many stars you can see. Uh, absolutely incredible. I mean, the, the, the sky above us is just filled with millions of stars. And I remember, I don't know why, but I remember laying there in the middle of that firefight, looking at that, those stars, thinking, holy smokes. You know, I mean, how crazy is this? Here I am. I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm in the middle of Karma, Iraq, outside of Fallujah. I'm all shot up. I'm probably not going to make it. And, and, and how beautiful is this night sky in this moment? So kind of a weird, random thought, but... It just uh, it just jumped out at me as I lay there. The next part is fascinating, Jason, because when the chopper finally arrived to evacuate you, you were able to actually walk yourself to the chopper. And you said that in that moment, 
one of the things that did go through your mind was that if this was the end, the things that you would not be able to teach your son. When, when you consider the moment where that gave you the energy, you said, to get you to the chopper and you're here on the Mojo Radio Show today, so it's worked out. What were the things that you think about today that you've been able to teach your son, you want your son to know? Because in that moment, there's something that I wouldn't get to teach my son. What is it that you have been able to, in the last 11 years, teach your son that's the number one thing in your mind that you're glad you had the life to be able to do it? You know, I think the biggest thing that my kids, both my son and my other, my other kids that I teach them is that you control your own destiny. And, and what I want from my kids and anyone that's out there to, you know, just be a good person and give back to society in some way and to follow your dreams. Um, so many people settle in life. They settle for a position. They settle for a job. They settle for something just because it's the easy path. And maybe somebody else discouraged them from going after a hope or dream that they wanted. And, and they listened to that. They listened to that advice and they accepted it. So my son is uh, a big fan of music. He's actually a DJ. And I have encouraged him to follow that path because um, you, only, you only have one life. You never know when that switch is going to get thrown and you're done. You never know. This life is fragile. It's, uh, you know, we all have these plans, but sometimes, you know, what I call life ambushes come along and they change our paths. So that's probably the biggest thing I've tried to encourage my kids is that no matter what hope or dream you have, especially in countries like Australia, countries like here in America, where you have the opportunity to go after what you believe in. Um, so many people in the world don't have that opportunity. I mean, when I was over in Afghanistan, I mean, that's what we were fighting against. I mean, the Taliban was repressing that. The, the, the Al-Qaeda was repressing that. ISIS was severely repressing that in people. And, and that's such an amazing thing. People take for granted two key words, freedom and opportunity. And when you can take freedom and opportunity and you apply them to go after what you believe in, it's amazing. And there's no guarantee you'll get it. I mean, I've told my kids that, you know, I've told my son, you know, you may never be you may never be bigger than a DJ here in this area, but you'll never know if you don't go after it. So he's pursuing it and he's getting it and he's getting a degree in in music. And um, it's amazing. And I'm proud of him for doing that. And I'm so blessed to still be here 11 years later to watch it happen. Um, so that's what I encourage my kids to do. That's what I encourage everybody to do. I tell people it's never too late. I don't care how old you are. If you have a dream that's unfulfilled, go do it. Because I'll tell you, if you have the luxury of facing death like I did, you will look back on all the things that you didn't do, all the things that you wish you had done, all those hopes and dreams that were unfulfilled that you didn't do for whatever reason. Just on that, on the recovery part, Jason, I, I heard you say that when you finally came to in hospital, the first thing you said is, are my guys okay? Then you said, have you notified my wife? <laughs> and then you said, do I still look pretty? <laughs> 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 it's interesting that when you hear the SEAL community talk about the hierarchy of priority in their mind, 
that seems to be it. It's about the guy next to you, the team, and your family, and then yourself. Is that how you see it? I do. But I'll tell you, it. I don't know if years ago I would have thought that same way. I think, you know, that statement is such a an interesting statement, that questioning um, the questions that I asked when I came out of surgery, because I sometimes wonder if it had happened five years prior, would I have still had that same thought process? You know? Because I had been through this amazing evolution of leadership and amazing evolution within myself. But yes, I mean, that is that was my first thought. I mean, all I thought about was several of my teammates had been wounded with me and were they okay? Had they made it? Um, and, and to this day, it would have been a lot harder for me if, uh, if I had lost someone or somebody had been injured worse than I was. And I know that's a weird thing for people to hear, um, but I, I know a lot of guys, a lot of leaders who really struggle with guilt because they lost someone or they, were, or they had someone that was severely injured and they weren't. Um, so that was absolutely my first thought. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I thought of my wife and family cause Holy smokes, I made it what I didn't think I was going to. And then the levity, I mean, you know, I mean, I've always tried to make light and, you know, had a self-deprecating humor. <laughs> so, so I don't know. It seemed like the thing to ask in the moment. Do you know, you just mentioned your wife, Erica, who actually I coordinated with to track you down to get you on the show today. And Erica has been... Just fantastic to deal with, as I said to you before we started recording. But when I realised that Erica that I was dealing with was actually a wife and then I heard her being interviewed and she talked about coming home and seeing a whole bunch of unmissed calls and some of them were coming from the government and it was your CO on the line, she said straight away she knew that it wasn't going to be good news. And we hear about resilience and grace and getting uncomfortable and toughing it out. And we hear about the Rangers and the Marines and Special Ops and the SEALs. But gee, you know, thinking about your wife being at home when you're in a firefight and then that call and then having to be bedside when you are going through your recovery... You know, we don't really consider what partners, men or women, what partners go through and the resilience and grit they have to have allow you to do what you do to serve. And, I mean, Erica must be such a special person in your life for you in your recovery and you as a man. Oh, you know, I tell you what, I mean, you nailed it. There's a lot of amazing warriors out there, you know, individuals who have earned the title of, of Ranger and Green Beret and, you know, elite levels of the SEAL teams and, you know, Delta Force and all these different things. But I tell you, the military spouses that are out there are some of the most incredible people I've met. And especially those uh, guys uh, that have been lost or gals that have been lost in some cases or individuals who have been wounded. And my wife was uh, no exception. I mean, she was just utterly amazing. And, you know, when, when, when you get wounded, it's such a, especially severely wounded. It is, you know, I'll be, I'll I'll be a hundred percent honest. And I've talked to other warriors about this later. I always plan for being killed. Um, you know, I had a, you know, I had everything in place that if I was killed to take care of my family, 
And I always thought about if I was wounded, it would be, you know, like the Monty Python, merely a flesh wound, and I'd recover and get back. (laughs) You know, never once did I ever think that I was going to be severely wounded. I don't I don't think any of us ever think that. Um, And and it is such a hard road. Uh, I mean, so many severely wounded warriors, people don't understand the path to get put back together when you've had a severe injury is such a long path. And it is, it is, um, it is, too, it is marked by oftentimes one step forward and two steps back. Uh, it is, it is there, it is, uh, riddled with infections. It is riddled with setbacks. It is riddled with oftentimes surgeries that fail. Um, it, just because war w- wounds are so dirty, uh, and ridden with infection. So to have someone like Erica or some other spouse who rides this emotional roller coaster that you're going through, and and for me to be at the height of my career, to have already gone through this low point where I almost ended my career from my arrogance, and then to come back and redeem myself and be at this high point where um, you know I had been on this really eventful deployment where we were we were doing everything that we had set out to do, and then you know in the blink of an eye, suddenly that was over, and I found myself in a hospital bed in Bethesda, Maryland, with half my face shot off. Uh, you know the the potential for them to amputate my arm because they didn't know if I was ever going to regain nerve function in my arm with the, and the amount of damage to my elbow. That was, I mean, I couldn't even get out of bed. I couldn't even get out of bed. I was so weak from all the blood loss. I'd have nurses help me to get to the bathroom. And I mean, that is so humbling. And to have a wife that then takes you home, you know, for me, it was eight weeks later and, you know, still super weak and having to take care of me. I mean, I was traked I had, a, I had a tracheotomy that I wore for seven months and two days. I had a stomach tube. I had metal hardware coming out of my body to hold, you know, my shattered bones and what was left of my elbow joint together. And Erica had to take care of me. She fed me. She ground up food and ground up my medicine and put it into a stomach tube. She cleaned my trach. I mean, these are things that, you know, when you talk about marriage and for better or for worse through sickness and in health, those are the moments that people don't think about. And so many people quit. And I was, I went from being this supreme elite operator to being uh, really a fourth kid to my wife. That's how I saw it. I was like, I am, I am a burden, um, you know, and she's having to take care of me and a three-year-old, a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. And if she had ever said to me, why did you do this to us? Why did you do this to our family? It would have destroyed me. And she never did. She never, ever complained. If she ever thought it, she kept it inside. Um, so she is. She is a saint. And for all those wives, and, and maybe even the flip side, if there are some husbands out there, we got some military, we got some women warriors out there. I know some amazing ones. We've worked with them in my organization. You know, but those spouses who helped put us back together, Man, my hat's off to you. You you all out there are the unsung heroes of war. And that was one of the reasons I really wanted to highlight my wife in the book, because I wanted people to see what they go through. I'm interested to know, just quickly, while we're on the point of recovery, we have a thing here in Australia. It's called the Invictus Games. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but it's for... I am. Yeah, okay, cool. Well, well that's 
that's being held here fairly soon. And, and the question I have around that is obviously in the early parts of your recovery, family is everything. But after that sort of, let's call it phase of recovery, how important is it to be around people in situations like that? People who have been through exactly what you've been through, through that recovery process, through the, the, the whole, you know, thing leading up to it and all that. Is, is, is that just as important? Yes, absolutely. Because, the, the, you know, your family is safety. Uh, that's the reality. I mean, you know, you're, for the most part, for most people, if you can make it to that point in your recovery, your family is obviously bought in. Um, and, and that's not always the case. I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot of horror stories of, uh, of families that break up after a severe injury like that. They just can't handle it, um, you know, and, and on both sides, you know, the mental and emotional wounds. But if you make it that far, yes, you need to get back out there into the world. And that's and, and you need to get back around people who are excelling, who have, who have overcome their injuries and they've shown that they can still get out there and do great things, what I call living greatly. And um, so the Invictus Games are an amazing example of that. Uh, and there's so many other things that are out there that get our wounded warriors back out into the community. I actually have started a new program. We launched it earlier this year. We did a ton of research called the Overcome Academy. And it's a leadership program for wounded warriors to get them back out in the community as leaders. I want them in the community as leaders. I want them to be mentors. I want them to get in front of kids and talk about, hey, you know, guess what? Life's not fair. My life did not turn out the way I thought it was going to, but guess what? It's not over and I can still give back and I can still motivate and inspire people and make a difference. And, uh, and we teach them how to speak and we teach them how to do all these things. Jess, I'm just going to take you back a step to your, your being in hospital because you, apart from the fact of the great work you do and the fact that you have a best-selling book in The Trident and you had this overcome mindset. You're also well-known for the sign you hung at the front door of your hospital room. And anybody can go online, look at Jason Redmond, you'll find, you know, sign hospital. And it's so well-known that even a US president made comment about that sign. What I want to ask you about is there's a comment at the end of the sign that says, this is a room of optimism and intense rapid growth. In your opinion, with what you've learned about recovery and the mental approach to recovery, was that an intentional way of framing what you wrote on that sign, not just for those entering the room, but also for yourself to know that you were taking a proactive and in some cases an aggressive approach to your own recovery? Was that intentional? So I'll say this, that it was... It was unintentionally intentional. How's that? Because I didn't put a lot of thought <laughs> into the sign. It wasn't like I sat there and mulled for like days and was like, this is what I'm going to write out. You know, this is my, you know, soliloquy and, you know, my motto and mantra. It, it really was a, it was a reaction to an emotional thing that occurred in that moment. And was that I had several people that came into my room expressing a level of pity over what happened. And it was kind of at this crossroads I was at early in my recovery of really struggling with what had happened and, and really struggling with 
a little bit of feeling sorry for myself. And, you know, it's kind of one of these things, if I felt sorry for myself, that's okay, I'm allowed. But if you still feel sorry for me, that's not okay at all. You're not allowed to feel sorry for me. And it kind of knocked me forward in that moment. It actually made me angry. Um, and that is what spurred the sign uh, to write out in that moment, you know, that, 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 that mantra, attention to all who enter here. If you're coming to this room with sadness or sorrow, don't bother. You know, the wounds that I received, I got a job I love, doing it for people I love, defending the freedom of a country I deeply love. This room you're about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense rapid regrowth. And, uh, you know, I'm going to make a full recovery. What is full? That's the absolute utmost physically. I have the ability to recover. Then I'll push that about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity, you know? And uh, so it was interesting. I wrote that sign probably more as a proclamation to other people, but it really was something that motivated me because it became a statement that I it became a line in the sand that I said, I'm going to live by. And I said, anyone, if you come into this room, you're going to heed this sign. But there was a flip side to that coin. I had to heed it. I had to live by it. And, and sometimes I'll be a, I'll be a thousand percent honest. Sometimes when I have a setback, when I am, when I'm tired, when things are going wrong, I'm like, God, you know, I, I just want to take a break. You know, I, I, you know, I don't know if I want to continue to grind, but I go, wait a minute, bro. You're Jay Redmond. You're the overcome guy. You're the guy that put that sign on the door. So guess what? It's go time. Keep pushing. And I think that's life. <laughs> if we hide our goals, if we keep our goals and we keep the things that we want to do only to ourselves, then only we know we're going to fail. Mm-hmm. But if we proclaim them out loud to other people, now we set we set the bar higher because now other people are aware of what we're trying to do. And that's really what that sign did. And what's been amazing is the impact it's had on literally. I mean, I, I don't I, I I think I'd love to say millions, but it's probably not true. But I, I'd say we're probably closing in on 100,000 people out there that have been absolutely impacted by that sign. And it's been amazing to me from the book, uh, people that have suffered injuries, people that have suffered some sort of catastrophic event in their life. And I tell you, the biggest one I get so many people write me about is cancer. I have people that are going through cancer that write me about my book and that sign and what a difference it made for them. So I think that's what's so critical um, in life, you know? Just a couple more things before I let you go, because I know there is a massive hurricane closing in on you as we speak. You mentioned before about the, the, the people serving in the military, first responders. These are guys that have the highest discipline, have the live, set and live by the highest standards, can go into a briefing room, have a mission set, understood, can follow it to a T. Yet when they come back from deployment, they have a hard time assimilating back into life. The skills they have are there, but they can't put them into the into the workplace. And you talk about you now teaching these warriors civilian civilian talk or civilian language. 
What sort of work are you doing with them? What, what do you need to do, Jason, to help them assimilate back into society? You know, we teach them how to build structure. I mean, the civilian world is very disjointed and it's very chaotic. Uh, you know, the military is incredibly structured and even a police unit, law enforcement unit, they're very structured. And uh, there's a reason why we have so much regulation and we have operating procedures and we have uniforms the reality is that makes life very easy. You don't have to worry about some of the choices. Um, you know, something as simple as what am I going to wear today? Uh, you know what you're going to wear. You're going to throw your uniform on because it's the uniform of the day. Um, you know, what am I going to do? Well, I know what I'm going to do because I am part of this unit and this is our mission. And this is what we are training for today so that we can be ready to execute this mission. And you get out into the civilian world and suddenly you are just inundated with massive amounts of information. You know, these little electronic devices, and you can't see me, but I'm holding my iPhone in my hand. You know, these little electronic devices devices that beep and chirp and, you know, they, they tell us that we got bills due and they tell us that somebody wants us and they, you know, emails come up and weather. I mean, I must have a I must have at least 100 notifications on my phone right now. And and it's easy to get overwhelmed in this world, especially if you've been to combat where you have broken life back down to that simple level of, of warfare, you know, where it truly becomes life and death. You know, you are broken down to the basic level of Maslow's hierarchy where, you know, OK, do I have food? Do I have water? Uh, you know, I have camaraderie and I have a purpose. I don't really need anything else. You're not worried about money. You could ask about what's in your bank account. You know, you are living in that moment. And the civilian world is absolutely not like that. I mean, you're inundated with information. You're inundated with not only your problems, other people's problems, your work problems, your kids' problems, you know, your neighbor's problems. And, and it's very easy for our warriors and some of these individuals to come home and just be overwhelmed. So we teach them help build structure. We teach them to have patience, to understand that, guess what? You know, you can't fix everything and you have to have patience. There are going to be people that lose their minds over something that we think is ridiculous, you know, absolutely ridiculous. I mean, you know, it makes me want to just choke people at times. You know, if I'm, you know, if I go to the coffee shop and the guy in front of me loses his mind at a young barista because, you know, she got his order wrong, I'm like, give me a break, dude. I just want to bash your head in on this counter. <laughs> but obviously, I would go to jail if I did that. And people would think, oh, my God, you're this crazy combat veteran. You're dangerous and we should put you away. So I talked to them that it's OK to have those thoughts. We just don't act on them. You know, we have to be bigger than that. We have to accept that some people haven't been exposed to some of the real problems in the world. They live in their own perspective. And we have a very unique perspective. And it's our job to be bigger and to be leaders and to help get out there and make a difference, to take the lessons we learn on the battlefield and turn them into something positive so other people can learn and be better too. Jason, you've been in some super scary situations. And it's fair to say that it was so scary that you thought at times you were going to enter the pearly gates. And if you weren't going to go through them, you could certainly see them from where you were. Is there anything that you fear today? Like when you think about your own self and what's ahead of you, do 
Do you have any fear of anything today? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm still afraid of failure. I don't like to fail. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have ever done the Gallup poll strength finder. Yep. Yep. So it's, you know, it pulls you on your different leadership qualities and what are your biggest strengths? So my number one is competition. I am, I, I want to win. And, and I think that's a strong part of, it's both a, it's both a, a strength and a weakness. Um, and, and to this day, I don't like to fail. I just, I, but I also accept that sometimes it's going to happen and I know I get better out of it. Um, beyond that, I don't know. You know, I mean, uh, I recognize that there's an end and I feel, you know, there's an end out there. My life is going to end. I'm, I'm, I've already lived two lifetimes. And if God decides to take me tomorrow, then I probably would be like, all right, Lord, I tried to do the best with this second chance you gave me. Um, and I'm just trying to make the most of it. You know, um, I, I know I probably try and do too much. <laughs> <laughs> that it's interesting just to close this out. That competitive nature of yours and not wanting to fail, do you think that has anything to do with the fact that you didn't pass away on that dirty soil when you went down behind that tractor tire that you refused to give in to the enemy, you wouldn't let them win and winning was you dying? Do you think that's where some of that, because you said you found a certain amount of energy. Energy came to you. Energy swept through your body at some point, which allowed you to get to your feet and get to the get to the bird, as you said. Do you think that competitive nature comes into it, Jason, where you go, you know what, I will not let you buggers win? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for anyone out there, I mean, you must have some sort of purpose or goal or drive that's going to push you to that next level. Um, and I think that for any, you know, there's a saying when you go through SEAL training, it pays to be a winner. Um, and, and they reward you for winning when you go through training and you also are punished when you lose. And, you know, I got punished plenty of times. Um, it is a good thing. You obviously have to be a gracious winner in life and you also more importantly have to be a gracious loser, but that competitive drive, that willingness to push myself through those uncomfortable positions to still grind forward, even though everything said, hey, stop, you can't, you can't go any further, has enabled my success. I mean, that is the definition of the overcome mindset. I mean, right there. And I mean, I think, you know, obviously, if you've read my book, there's a religious component to it, whether you believe that or not. And, uh, I think it was a combination of the two that enabled me to come home. This, this is going to relate back to something you said earlier today. You said when you are in a firefight or someone gets shot, it's not like it is in the movies. Being a SEAL, a successful SEAL, and now doing wonderful work with warriors who are returning – is there a film that actually does get closest to it, Jason? Is there one that you watch and go, you know, that takes me somewhat close to what it's like to be in that moment in a firefight with men who are being either killed or injured? Does one get close? Uh, I thought that Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge is probably one of the most realistic and impactful war movies I've watched in a long time. 
Um, just uh, it was it was visceral. It was uh, gut wrenching. Uh, I think you could feel the the tension. Um, some movies miss it. Um, I also thought that um, some of the scenes from Lone Survivor were incredibly well done, although that is a very hard movie for me to watch. I've only watched it all the way through once, and I don't really want to watch it again just because those were friends of mine um, in that movie. But the scene where um, I don't know who the actor is that plays Matt Axelson, where he's leaning against the tree and he is... It's what we call a sucking chest wound. It is an injury where a bullet pierces your lung and your lung starts to collapse from the pressure. Every breath you take causes your lung to collapse more and more because you have a hole in your chest. And and they they showed him going through that process. And I, I thought that was uh, hard to watch, but very realistic. An amazing piece of film. I mean, that story of came from the book that Marcus Luttrell wrote called Lone Survivor and played by Mark Wahlberg. It just is an incredible, incredible movie. So, uh, well, mate, this has been brilliant. I, I've still got another half a page of things I wanted to cover with you, but I'm going to allow you to go and, and hunker down for the hurricane, which is approaching, which is, which is very real. Thank you for yeah, your time. We'll Thank you for everything you do. I, I was going to ask you, hearing you say, I think we'll be okay. I was going to ask you, do you sort of look back on what you went through 11 years ago now and look at the storm and go, storm? Whatever. Come on, bring it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, you got to be smart, you know. I mean, it's not like, you know, yeah, I'm going to stand in the middle of it and be like, whatever, and not be prepared. I mean, you've got to be prepared. I mean, one of the things that I talk about is will you be ready for the things that come along in your life, whether it's uh, – mental, emotional, or real world ambush. Um, you know, and this storm is like that. So we're ready. You know, I've probably got three weeks worth of food. You know, we got water. I got water purifiers if I need it. You know, I mean, I've got, you know, I mean, nobody likes to think of the darker side of national emergencies, but I got guns and ammo. So, I mean, I'm good here. (laughs) I got to be honest. What I imagine is Lieutenant Dan on the, on the prawning, on the shrimping boat in Forrest Gump. (laughs) Is that all you got? got? (laughs) Come on. Exactly. I just, want to say to you guys before we finish um you know having the honor of and and being down there in australia i just want to let you know i got the honor of working with australian uh special forces guys sas guys during my career and uh just top notch um you know i've worked with special operations forces from around the world and you know some from third world countries who obviously are still figuring it out and some from first world countries who are just top notch and and operate in a level that's equivalent to some of our best special operations forces in the world so uh to all the australians that are out there i just want to say you guys uh you guys got some kick-ass special operations guys there. Thank you. I've got a mate who's in the forces. I'm sure he'd be happy to hear that. Good. He, does, he doesn't listen to the show, but anyway, we can tell him. <laughs> <laughs> you can play with the soundbite. Yeah, that's right. He'll, he'll, he'll probably say, ah, oh, one of those American SEALs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Pussies. SEALs, those <laughs> pussies. SEALs. They're all pussies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Face injury. It's a, it's a scratch. It's a yeah. Flesh wound. What do you mean you couldn't get up and fight on? Come on. Four years to put that guy back together? Whatever. (laughs) Jason, uh, there is so much more 
I would like to go through with you about leadership, your tenants for, for life. There's just so much that I want to get. Can we get back on the, back on the line with you some ways down the dirt road to to keep this conversation going? Because there's a load more I'd like to ask you about. Would you be willing to uh, to suffer us out again? Yeah, I'd love it, man. This was a great interview. I, I enjoyed it. So uh, I'm all about it. Bring me back on the Mojo Show. Awesome. Good on you, man. And if anybody else is looking, I just relaunched. Uh, I, I was running for a little while a video blog but it was, I'll be honest, it was a little more than I could do in the moment. So I've relaunched it actually as a podcast. The first episode dropped today, the JR Overcome Show. So if people oh, nice. want to hear more of the things that I'm doing, uh, it's on most of the major podcast platforms. I am still waiting for it to pend on Apple and Google Podcasts, but uh, that will happen. And uh, I partnered with a friend of mine, a fellow teammate, Ray Kerr. And Ray and I, the show is all about leadership and overcoming adversity. So it's the JR Overcome Show. We might pop that in the show notes, Gary. Uh, Already done. Uh, Roger that. Done. A couple of things. Where? So I've got that in the show notes. I'll find the links, hook it up for you, mate. The second thing is when people want to know more about you, the work you're doing, the Overcome Academy, where is the hub you send people to? So two, I have two different websites. Obviously, my, my, my website is jasonredmond.com. So you can go there and uh, learn more about my story. Uh, you can purchase a signed copy of my book. You can book me for speaking. And then uh, combatwoundedcoalition.org is my nonprofit web site. And that is where we are doing the work to make a difference for our wounded warriors. And that is where the home of the Overcome Academy is. And did you say Ray Cash is doing the show with you? Yeah, Ray Cash Care. So Ray was a teammate. Ray and I actually went, not only did we go through Buds together, we actually went through Hell Week together. Ray and I were in the same boat crew during Hell Week. Well, if uh, I will speak to Erica, but if we can get uh, Ray on the show, because uh, I was speaking to Erica about that, that would be great because we could then coincide it and uh, your show would be up and running on all the platforms and we could um, do something with him to promote your podcast, mate. That sounds good. Let's do it. I think Ray would be all about it. Yeah, yeah. No, that'd be... Um, so if you put a good word, put a good word, put a good word in for us, we'll get him I'll, on the line. That was great. Yeah, Mate, uh, he'll do. The not only do I love talking with you and hearing hearing your philosophies, your story is amazing, but. To be here on your 11th anniversary, mate, is uh, is very special for us. So um, yeah. thank you so much for everything. And I know there are people all over the world who congratulate you on your service, what you have contributed, what you continue to contribute. And uh, hats off, mate. It's a true honour. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, fellas, uh, mine also. Thanks for what you guys are doing with the show and thanks for having me on. So, you know, to anybody out there that's struggling with uh, adversity in their life, Hey, man, keep driving forward. There, there is there's light at the end of the tunnel. Now I'm going to show you how to make radio. For this, you'll need high-fidelity stereophonic sound. And also a bit of music. And then, of course, mojo, baby. Yeah! There's one I made earlier. The Mojo Radio Show. Being Rocktober, it's school holidays at the moment. I took the kids out yesterday. 
afternoon for an afternoon tea and a, a bit of a muck around. I told that story to Jack and Liam, my eldest two, 15 and 13. They refused to believe me. <laughs> they, they were just going, no way. There's no way that someone could live through that. I was telling them how, about his jaw injury and being shot in the arm and all the rest of it. And they were just, they, they refused to believe me. So, you know, I, I guess <laughs> their experience on Xbox tells them that no one survives that sort of injury, but there you go. Well, it's something that Jay said during the interview. He said, when you see it in the movies, it ain't like that. I've never heard anybody specifically talk about what it's like to be in a gunfight the way that Jason just described it. I mean, that puts you, Lone Survivor, which is about his mates, which is a fantastic movie, and i got to say you shake your head as they go through it because the wounds Marcus Luttrell had to face up to and live through are not dissimilar to what Jason went through. But that movie kind of takes you to a gunfight, but hearing him talk about it and the way that bullets whistle past, the sound, the feeling of it, man, I'll tell you, that was something else. Absolutely. And, and I'd also like to add on to the back of that, I completely understand that he's not the only guy that has survived horrific injuries like that from war. There are plenty of brave guys out there. It's just that we heard his story and it intrigued us. Hi. Ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a great treat right now. It's Rock Tober on the Mojo Radio Show. Although we are into our fourth year of Rocktober, the good thing about podcasts is that you can go back and download the back catalogue. You can go back through any show and look at the amazing catalogue they've got that can go back a year, a season, two seasons, four years. So we thought we'd go back with this Rocktober Rewind. Rocktober Rewind. Joe DeSena is the founder of the amazing brand Spartan. Now, Spartan is a global optical racing brand with well over 1 million participants every year. Now, Joe's a guy with a simple mission and his mission is rip people off the couch and change lives. Straight up, pretty simple. Last Rocktober, we had the real honour of interviewing Joe and here's a Rocktober rewind. The message you're sending to people, what's it mean to Spartan Up, Joe? So when you talk about the podcast, the racing, the merch, everything you're doing, what does it mean to somebody? How do you summarise that with somebody saying Spartan Up? You know, you stop complaining about the silly thing. You are willing to go out in the cold, out in the rain, carry your groceries a little further than you normally would, take the stairs instead of the elevator. Big deal uh, if the shower is not hot, jump in a cold shower. It's, it's this concept of changing your frame of reference. You know, I was with a bunch of military veterans this weekend at West Point, which is a military college in the United States, and we had a race. We had 8,300 people there. And amongst them were a bunch of veterans that had, you know, missing limbs, um, paralyzed in wheelchairs. And I spent uh, the better part of the day with them. And it really opened your eyes to this idea of what do I have to complain about? Are you kidding me? We have the, you know, just, we have everything we want. And um, the story actually gets funny. This guy, Noah, who runs a group called Oscar Mike, um, he had, I don't know, a dozen or so of these adaptive athletes, uh, military veterans doing the race with him, missing some limbs and wheelchairs and stuff. And I said to him, that's a great cause. That's a great mission you've got. Do you have a tattoo of your um, foundation, Oscar Mike? And he said, no. He said, Joe, do you have a tattoo of your company, Spartan? 
And I said no, and so we both went to a tattoo parlor and we got tattooed <laughs> of, on on Saturday of each other's of each other's mission. So he's got a Spartan tattoo on him, and I've got Oscar Mike on my cap. My wife hasn't seen it yet, but um, but my wife my wife on the phone said, "What are you doing? Are you crazy?" And I said, "You know, no big deal. These guys these guys are in wheelchairs and missing art. Like I'll, I'll happily throw their tattoo on my leg." to um, motivate myself and others around me. You don't seem to go through this hesitation in grey areas. You just seem to get after it. What What is your own personal philosophy to life, Joe? Yeah, I mean, that's it, right? Life is super, super short. And maybe I, maybe I understand it better than most because my mom died at a young age. My father died. Uh, most people in my family are dead. Um, I grew up in a neighbourhood where people went to jail for long periods of time, 20, 30 years. And so you see people disappear. And so... Maybe seeing all that at a young age got me to just really cherish uh, the moments and not waste any time, not be indecisive, and just get shit done. I wonder if he's still carrying that cowbell around. Uh, no, I'm sure he's moved on to another <laughs> one, which was, uh, I think the latest one he had was doing 3,000 burpees in a month. Ah, okay. There Do you the go. sums. Yeah. So what that piece was about was changing your frame of reference. And it's never been demonstrated, I reckon, better than this week's guest on the show, Jay Redmond. Think about your frame of reference. When you have had your face blown off, you're still in a bad firefight and you're thinking to yourself, it's all over. So there's your frame of reference right there. Now, if you look at how that can be used, another guest on the show going back back of the day was going through cancer treatment. But he remembered his grandmother who had been through Auschwitz. And he would think to himself, as a frame of reference, is this worse than Auschwitz? And he said that got him through. So it pays to collect your own thoughts to create your own frame of reference and think to yourself, what's this situation like in comparison to dot, dot, dot? Now, if you want the absolute simplistic approach to this. This is something that Robbo and I talked about before and after the show with Joe DeSena. If you're not sure what your own frame of reference is, strip it right back. And here's one that stuck in our mind that Joe mentioned during the show. Water, food and shelter. It's a really um, powerful place to be when you're considering just that. And for me, it occurred when I started to do these very long distance races where you don't have water, food and shelter. And you're completely mentally and physically broken. And um, it's a very liberating place to be because you're not thinking about, oh, my God, I forgot to turn the lights off in the house. Oh, uh, the coffee's no good this morning. Oh, the car didn't start. The kids just forget about all that, right? You care about survival. And when you get to that place, and I was recently in Scotland just a week ago, and it was pouring rain, and it was windy, and it was miserable, and I wanted water, food, and shelter, and it was a great Great spot to be. 31 days of pure mojo. Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. So uh, a bit of a sample of the the latest brew the other day, mate. Not too bad. Not too bad. Those boys in Byron Bay know what they're doing. Well, this is interesting. Get this. Venture capitalists around the world are projected to inject $1 billion 
into coffee startups by the end of this year. The end How of much 2018. One billion, did you say? This is serious. This is according to Inc. magazine, right? Wow. Coffee startups are already receiving 600 million in investment in the first seven months of this year alone, Holy 2018. Crap. Wow. And they're actually now competing with giants like Starbucks and Dunkin', which used to be Dunkin' Donuts. So some genius went, let's just call it Dunkin'. <laughs> I mean, honestly, there's a what were they thinking? Absolutely. Anyway, so not that we're going to launch our own company, but venture capitalists project a billion dollars just into getting coffee startups up. If so, there's a billion dollars out there, shouldn't we be starting our own company? <laughs> well, we'll finally be able to get some money out of this baby. So here we go. Uh Here's some swag for you to win, folks. If you want to go onto iTunes, open up ratings and reviews, leave us a review, a star review, and write us one line. Let us know you've done it and we will send you some swag. Now, the swag is the Buddha Brew 2. Leave a review, you get the Buddha Brew 2. This, the Buddha Brew 2 is from Byron Bay. Arna Devane of the Slip Muse, a buddy of the show, saw a, supposedly saw a Buddhist monk sitting in a cafe listening to our show on a, a device, drinking coffee. We get onto our mate at Fish River Roasters, the award-winning Fish River Roasters, Pete Harrison. He found that brew from Byron. He got it back to Fish River Roasters. He's made us a brew. It is superb. We'll send you some beans. It's legit. We'll pay for the costs. All you can do is leave a review. So it doesn't get much easier than that. But once you've done it, let us know you've done it. Email us at info at themojoradioshow.com. The beans are yours. We'll take care of the rest. And uh, you got yourself some Buddha Brew too. On the Mojo Radio Show, it's Rocktober. This is Tate Fletcher from Pirate Life Radio. You're listening to the Mojo Radio Show. Get it right for Rocktober. One of the biggest tours that we worked on, as in, as a radio station promoting it back in the day of the M's, would have to have been the U2 concerts, right? Easily the biggest, easily. That piece you found on the edge, can we play that? Because I reckon that is a great way to take us out. Yep, here it is. This is what I'm actually playing. That's it. The rest is the foot pedal, the effects, the whole thing. You know, so if you're on acoustic guitar and say, here's my new riff, it's a really cool riff, listen. I got this echo unit and I brought it back to rehearsal. I just got totally into playing but listening to the return echo. Filling in notes that I'm not playing, like two guitar players rather than one. The exact same thing, but it's just a little bit off to one side. I could see ways to use it that had never been used. Suddenly, everything changed. So what do you make of that? What do I make of that? I'm just intrigued. As an audio engineer, I sit there and go, wow, that's no wonder he's paying his guitar tech, whatever he's paying you. But did you ever, I, I must say, when I, in hindsight, I remember standing at gigs, watching The Edge play, going, how is that sound coming from four guys on the stage and one of them's not even playing an instrument? Yeah, that's right. 
Exactly. And I used to think there was another guy with the synthesizer behind stage playing in the band, like the fifth guy from the Rolling Stones. Yeah. But what I take from that is that that very last line when he said, suddenly everything changed. And for me, you get a band like you two, who are one of the great rock bands of all time, even The Edge was challenging the sound of those two simple notes going through an amp. And the thing I take from this, and I think we can all take something from it, and it goes back to Steve Earle with the mandolin, is you go, it doesn't matter if you're an accountant or a receptionist, a sales rep, mechanic, somebody working in tech. If you take the same two chords that everybody else can play, but think, what could I do differently with those two chords? How could I make it different? What's, what's never been done before? It's not even the doing of it. It's the mental approach you take to it. And taking that a mental approach, suddenly everything changes. Mm. So producer's choice, what you two track is going to close week two of October 2018. Oh, man, how do you pick from that catalogue? I reckon, uh, I reckon Vertigo. We're out. Your eyes are wide and go
The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.